Welcome to Day of Destiny with Dr. Michelle Corral, author, prophetic teacher, and pastor of Breath of the Spirit Prophetic Word Center. Dr. Corral can be seen weekly, nationwide, and around the world on her weekly telecasts that air on God TV, Impact, and Word Network. Now, let's join Dr. Corral by experiencing Day of Destiny, designed with your highest destiny in mind. Now, here is Dr. Corral. All right. We are looking, beloved saints, at the book of Ezra tonight. And why are we looking at the book of Ezra? Because we are coming into the time of return and recovery. So let us, beloved saints, begin with Ezra chapter 7. And we're going to begin with verses 8 and 9. So let us begin. Verses 8 and 9. Let us see this wonderful word that God is bringing. And we're going to ask our beloved prophet Philip to speak this for us. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. All right, I want you to see the dates. This is Ezra returning to the land of Israel. Now, the book of Ezra is all about Shabbat Zion, returning to Zion. Say it. Shabbat, Shabbat Zion. Zion. Say it again. Shabbat, Shabbat Zion. Shabbat Zion returned to Zion, but it's not just returning back to Zion. What are they going back to Zion to do, Pastor Bonzi? What are they going to do when they return to Zion? Uh, they're going to reinstate worship and... Um Try and get the uh, glory of God back into the temple. Yes, they're there to rebuild the ruins of Zion. Set with me. They're there to rebuild the ruins of Zion. So we see Ezra and Nehemiah originally as one book, and we see Ezra is about the return of the taken treasures. And Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple and the return of the taken treasures. Nehemiah is about the building of the wall. Are you all with me? This is all about recovering, restoration, taking back territory. How many of you are ready to take back territory? How many of you are ready for restoration? Ready for breakthrough? All right. Now, what we're about to read and what we have just read is not written so you know it happened. Nothing in the Bible, when it is historical, is written so you know it happened. You see, if you want to know what is happening, you can get a textbook or a newspaper. We don't read the Bible like a newspaper. We must understand that even in a historical narrative, there is a prophetic agenda. And Ezra, who is the author of this book, is going out of his way to teach us something about time. He wants us to be extremely supernaturally sensitive to the time that he arrives back in Jerusalem. Let us look. It says, going to the eighth verse, and he came to Jerusalem in what month? What month are we now in the biblical calendar? What is this month? Of. And what month is that? Fifth month, isn't it? Yes. Okay, so this is the fifth month. And when did Ezra return? 
In the fifth month. In the fifth month. All right. Which is in the seventh year of the king. Now look at verse nine and see, doesn't that sound a little, not strange, but isn't that sound a little providential? Look at verse nine. And those of you who are Torah students who have studied Torah with us, what is actually being accentuated in verse nine? And why is verse nine even up there? All right, let's read it. Read it together. One, two, three, go. Go. For on the first day of the first month began the king to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem. Okay, why is that even written? Is that written so that we know when he left? Is that why it's written? Why do you think it's written? Look at that verse, especially Torah students who have studied Torah. Tell us what the intention is. What do you get out of that? Okay, it took five months. Very good observation. But why is that even written? Why is this written? Why do we need to know when Ezra left? Does it really matter? Does it really matter that Ezra left in the first day of the first month? Why is that even in there? Yes? yes. The first day of the first month is the month of Nisan. Okay. Nisan is the month of the children of Israel's deliverance. So there's deliverance and return going out of a captivity. And so is Ezra. He is, uh, the writer is correlating Ezra's departure with the departure of the children of Israel out of Israel. Exactly. He is telling us something here. He is telling us that the first month, let's go to Exodus chapter 12, and I want you to see verses 1 and 2, the beginning of the biblical calendar. Remember, all dates in the Bible are the biblical calendar dates. Say it with me. All dates in the Bible are the biblical calendar dates. Tell your neighbor the sixth month is not June. And the fourth month is not April. Okay, and say this with me. There, the months on the biblical calendar does not just have different names, okay, to our months. Okay, it doesn't mean the first month is January, but, but on the biblical calendar, it's Nisan. No, the timing is totally different. The first month doesn't start in January on the biblical calendar. It doesn't start in the winter. It starts when? What, what, what season? What season does the first month start? Springtime. Why did God establish the biblical calendar in spring? What happens in the spring? Everything is new. Everything is new. Say it with me. Everything is new. Okay? All right. So let's read verses two at verses one and two. The Lord spoke to Aaron and Moses in the land of Egypt, saying, Go ahead. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This month shall be to you the first month. It is the beginning of the it is the beginning of months. It is the first month of the year to you. This is the commandment to establish the calendar. Why did God want the calendar established? Just so the children of Israel could mark days? No. God established the biblical calendar because his plan is about to be unfolded. And the calendar was established so that on dates that have been designated before time, before the worlds began, God's plan for time would be carried out in 
that plan. And so in the first month, we see the children of Israel leaving Egypt, but also it is a month that was designated that everyone who is having an Egypt-like experience every time that month comes around, God always continues to release his people out of Mitzrayim-like experiences. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. amen. So that Ezra is now telling us that he left Babylon, not by accident, but by the good hand of God that was upon him. Why? Because he left during the month that God ordained that all bondages would break out of people's lives, that we ourselves would leave our own Mitzrayim-like experience. And Ezra being a captive in Babylon, it's not an accident that he left to go back to Jerusalem with the what? What did he go with? Who knows what Ezra came back to the Holy Land with. What did he carry? Michael? The vessels. All right. Who else came out of Egypt? What did the children of Israel come out of Egypt with? What did they leave with? Okay, let's let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We should know this by the back of our hand. What did they leave Egypt with? Did they leave empty or did they leave with something? What is the, yes, what, what Elizabeth, what did you say? Exactly. They left with vessels of silver and vessels of gold. Say it with me. Exactly. Look at what they left with. The Bible says, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and it shall come to pass that when you go out, you shall not go out empty, doesn't it? Yes. What does the next verse say? The Bible says, um, it says, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold, doesn't it? And raiment, and you will put them upon your sons and your daughters, and you will what? Spoil the Egyptians. Now, I want you to see this word jewels. See it? Yes. Jewels is the normal word in Hebrew for jewels is segula. Say it, segula. segula. This is not what this reads in Hebrew. Okay, it's translated jewels of silver and jewels of gold, but it doesn't read that way in Hebrew. I don't know why the King James uh, Version or why the translators translated it jewels of silver and jewels of gold because it's not segula. This word here is the word kalim. Say it with me, kalim. kalim. What are kalim? Who knows what kalim are? Okay, kalim is the Hebrew word for vessels. Say it with me. Kalim is the Hebrew word for vessels. Say it again. Kalim is the Hebrew word for vessels. So why is Moses calling what the children of Israel left when they actually took the bracelets, they took the necklaces, they took the gold, they took the silver, but Moses is calling them by their predestined purpose because the children of Israel are given the gold and the silver, but they're going to give much of it to Moses to build what? 
They're going to build the tabernacle with what they took out of Egypt. Say this with me. They're going to build the tabernacle with what they took out of Egypt. Okay, so they're leaving Mitzrayim with silver and gold. Say it. And they're leaving Mitzrayim with vessels. Why is Ezra telling us? He left Babylon in the first month, the same month the children of Israel left. And as the children of Israel left Egypt with vessels, so is Ezra leaving Babylon with all the vessels. Is that a coincidence? Say this with me. The hand of God orchestrated it. Because when God is moving and when we're under what God has ordered in his calendar, I want you to understand the mighty hand of God is at work. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Okay. Got that? Do you have it good? Okay. This shall be the beginning of months to you. It is the first month of the year to you. Why? Because it's the month of redemption. It's the month you come out of Mitzrayim. It's the month that God ordained. Do you see that? Okay. Now let's go back to Ezra. Why is he telling us that he arrived in the fifth month? Does it really matter? Yes, it definitely matters. Do you know why? Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 52. And let us see what Ezra is really telling us. Notice Ezra is not interested so much in giving us um, a, a journalistic account of his travels. This is not what this is about. This is not about documenting the travels of Ezra. This is about documenting the divine providence. This is about documenting God's seasons. This is about documenting when God says in his word, he has ordained a time for a certain event to happen. I want you to know those events happen as God spoke in his word. Hello, somebody. Somebody ought to say, time is God's instrument. Notice verse 12. Verse 12. Let's look at verse 9 just for just for context. Verse 9. Then they took the king. The Bible tells us uh, uh, we're, we're seeing all these. Uh, this is the invasion of Babylon into the holy city. Verse 10. King of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And he slew also the princes of Judah in Riblah. Then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah the, and the king of Babylon bound him in chains and carried him to Babylon and put him in the prison until the day of his death. Now in the, now in the, now in the, in the fifth month, which was in the 19th year of Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, um, which served the king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem, and what did he do? And what else did he do? And he broke down the walls of Jerusalem, and guess what? The last of the vessels were also taken out in the fifth month. Now we have, according to the word of the prophet Jeremiah, 70 years, and guess what month the vessels are being restored? Guess what month everything is being returned back? It's the fifth month, and somebody ought to say divine reversal. Say this with me, the fifth month. 
is not a month of burning. The fifth month is a month of divine reversal. The fifth month is a month of the restoration of the taken treasures. Somebody ought to say the restoration of the taken treasures. All right, let's look and see this just for a moment. Go with me to Daniel chapter 1 very quickly. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I want you to see that Daniel is going to tell us when he was deported. Daniel's, Daniel's account is Daniel is also living in the time of Tishabov. Daniel was not there when Zion burned, but he is just a few years prior to Tishabov. Guess what? He is a victim of Babylonian invasion. The Babylonians came into the city of Jerusalem and the very first deportation, they took all the royal family and they also took all the vessels, all the main vessels. They left some vessels, but they took all the most costly vessels the Ark of the Covenant, we still to this day do not know where it is. They took the table of showbread. They took the menorah. They took 5,400 vessels of sacrifice. They took all the gold. They took all the silver. They broke it in pieces, Second Kings 24 tells us. But some of it, they took the vessels and they put it in the house of their gods. All right? Now... Look at, what, look at what Daniel tells us. This is Daniel's account because Daniel was deported. Remember, this invasion didn't take place in 24 hours. This is a 20-year period. All right, the, the Babylonians came in 606 BC and they surrounded the city in the 10th month and they began to besiege the city and they took Judah as a vassal state. And they told the king of Judah, if you obey, then we're going to let you live. And you're going to pay so much to us, and we're not going to destroy you or destroy the city, and we'll let you continue to exist as you are, but you are going to give us X amount of gold and silver every year. Jeremiah told them, obey the king of Babylon, and you will be able to live in this place. Submit yourselves to the king of Babylon, and you're going to live. And they said he was, he was a, a traitor to Israel. And they put him in the prison. They refused to listen to Jeremiah. And as a result, the king Zedekiah rebelled. He made a pact with the king of Babylon. And because the Babylonians left, they surrounded the city. They took the gold. They deported several thousand Jews. And be, uh, and because they left temporarily, they, they got called to another war. The king of Judah considered this, well, they're not coming back, so we're not going to pay. Mm, that was the wrong thing to do, especially when the prophet tells you to pay. That was really the wrong thing to do. And the false prophets are backing up the king. The false prophets are all backing up within two years. Nebuchadnezzar's yoke is going to be broken off of you. 
And those that were taken in the captivity with Daniel received false prophecies from the false prophets because they sent it to the captives in Babylon. Big trouble, isn't it? All right. So what is, what is Daniel telling us? Daniel is telling us not about his grief being captured. Daniel is not telling us how difficult it was to be brought to Babylon. Daniel is going to tell us the most difficult part of Babylon was that he didn't want to sin against God. Daniel's not going to tell us about the chains. Daniel's not going to tell us about the humiliation. Daniel's not going to tell us how bad he misses Jerusalem. Daniel isn't going to tell us, well, now I'm a eunuch. I'm in the palace of the king. I'll never see my mother again. I'll never see my brothers again. I'll never see my family again. I'm here in this palace, and I am the king's servant for the rest of my life. No, we don't get any of that from Daniel, do we? Because that's not really what bothered Daniel. What really upset Daniel, what really killed Daniel in his heart was that the king was serving to him food that was not kosher. And that he would be forced to sin against God as a Jew. Something he refused to do. Hello, somebody, are you with me? If you are, say amen. So Daniel opted to rather die than sin. Do you know what he did? He went to the prince of the eunuchs, along with the agreement of two other, three other brethren that were with him. They were so close. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so close together with Daniel. They agreed, but Daniel was the spokesperson. So if what Daniel said, guess who's going to get the sword first? Because he's the spokesperson. Guess who's going to get the number one capital punishment for dare? You are a servant. You are a captive. You cannot choose the menu in this house. Boldly saying, just prove us 10 days and see. Let us not sin against our God. And God backed him up, didn't he? Now we're going to understand that Daniel begins the entire book of Daniel not about his own captivity. Daniel begins the book of Daniel over something that grieved him more than anything. The vessels were taken to Babylon. Read it. Go ahead, Prophet Philip. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure of the house of his God. Okay, notice, do we really even need to know that in Daniel? No, this is written so that we understand every way we are studying Galut Bavel. Say it with me, Galut Galut. Bavel, Bavel. Babylonian exile. Galut Galut. Bavel. Bavel. Okay, Bavel is Babylon. Say it, Bavel Bavel. is Babylon. Galut is exile. Galut Bavel. Galut Bavel. 
Okay, so we are studying Galut Babel, the most important thing that we are hearing from every person that is documenting the experience of exile is that the vessels were also exiled. Okay, not only were the people exiled, the vessels were exiled. Set with me, the vessels were exiled. I want you to understand these vessels had the anointing on them. And the vessels represent the treasures that have been taken out of our lives that have been brought to Babylon that God wants to restore back into the church. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Amen. So yes, in a literal sense, obviously the vessels were taken to Babylon and put in Shinar and put in the places of Babylon. But in a personal prophetic sense, those vessels represent the instruments of righteousness and the instruments of service by which we serve God because those vessels were instruments of sacrifice to God. Are you with me, saints? All right. So now let us see what's actually been exiled. The people have been exiled on different deportations, okay? The vessels did not all leave at once. This is the first deportation of vessels. Do you know what happens? Uh, Let's go just for a moment to 2 Chronicles, and I want you to see Chronicles event Chronicles version of the burning of Zion. I'm, we're going to only read Second Chronicles 24, and we're basically going to look at verses 11 through 13. Set with me, verses 11 through 13. Okay, so first of all, uh, did I say Chronicles? I meant Kings, Second Kings. Second Kings 24. 2 Kings 24, verses 11 through 13. 2 Kings. Now, I want you to know, it's important to know who wrote 2 Kings and 1 Kings, isn't it? Why do we even want to know? Because we want to know the prophetic agenda, don't we? We're not just reading the history, but we want to know what is the prophetic agenda here. Okay, the way we learn the prophetic agenda is first we have to understand who the author is. Guess who the author of First and Second Kings is? Okay, Samuel, no, he's gone. He's been gone a while. It's Jeremiah, okay? Jeremiah, okay? Samuel did, though, write a lot of books, so you're right there, okay? Samuel wrote the book of Judges. Samuel wrote Ruth, and Samuel wrote part, about three quarters of First Samuel. The rest... Uh, 1 Samuel is written by Nathan the prophet and by Gad the prophet. Okay, so now that we see Jeremiah is the author, Jeremiah is also the author of Jeremiah and Lamentations. He's the author of Tishabov. He is the prophet of Tishabov. Say it with me. Jeremiah is the prophet of Tishabov. So he is going to reveal to us the personal, powerful, prophetic meanings of Tishabov, isn't he? Yes. All right. So what he writes corresponds with what he wants to leave for us as a legacy, because everything that is in the Bible is for every generation. Yes. 
So that means whoever reads what you are reading, even if it is historical in the Bible, it is not just historical in the sense that it is giving you information. What the authors of scripture have written is personal, powerful, prophetic, and relevant for every generation with instruction. Are you with me? Look at what he says here. Verse 11, go ahead, read a dear prophet Philip. Verses 11 through 13. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. He and his mother, and his servants, and his princes, and his officers, and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord has said. All right, beloved, let's look at this. The Bible says, And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, came up against the city and his servants did besiege it. What does that mean, just literally? What happens when a city is besieged? Somebody just want to tell us? Okay, dear. Excellent. No one can come in and no one can go out. All right. So that means your child, if you're staying in there and there's no food, you're going to be starving in a few weeks because there's no way to get the food in, correct? Yes. There's nobody coming in and there's nobody going out. City is besieged. All right. What does the next verse tell us? Jehoiakim, don't get Jehoiakim mixed up with Jehoiakim. We have these two uh, kings. One is the father and one is the son, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. Okay, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. What does that mean? He went to surrender his sovereignty. Sit with me. He went to surrender his sovereignty. He went out of that city to surrender. Guess what he handed him? His crown. Handed him his crown. I surrender. What's the first sign of Tishabov in our life? When we surrender the sovereignty of the rule and the reign of God in our life. When we surrender the sovereignty of our ministry. When we surrender the sovereignties of our destiny. And why did he surrender the sovereignty? Why? Why did he do it? Because the city was besieged and he couldn't do anymore. I want you to understand so often the enemy comes at us. We're under attack. We're under besiege. We feel like we can't go out. We feel like we can't go in. We feel like we can't take another day of testing. We feel like we've been beaten down by the enemy. And so what the enemy wants us to do is he wants us to surrender the sovereignty. He wants us to surrender the sovereignty and rule of the Holy Ghost over our lives. He wants us to surrender the sovereign call of God on our life. He wants us to surrender our crown. Say this with me. The devil cannot have my crown. He cannot have my ministry. He cannot 
What did Jesus say? Jesus said in the book of Revelation, look at Revelation chapter 2, and looking at verse 9, Jesus said, behold, Satan, I know your works and your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. Verse 10, fear none of those things that you shall suffer. For behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried 10 days. 10 days is just a, it's a prophetic parallel to the book of Daniel. They were tried 10 days, weren't they? All right, that you may be tried 10 days, but be thou faithful unto death, and I will what? Give you a crown of life. So often when the enemy is putting the pressure on us, what he's after is the crown. He's after your anointing. He's after your calling. He's after your purpose. He's after your destiny. But you need to say in the name of Jesus, he is not taken my crown. Are you with me? And notice who surrendered it. The devil didn't come and pull it off. Nebuchadnezzar didn't come and pull that crown off the head of Jehoiakim. No, he surrendered it to him. He surrendered it. And he was taken to Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar starts taking the vessels. Say this with me. He didn't take all the vessels all at one time. Say this with me. When the enemy comes into this temple, tries to attack this temple, he doesn't take all the ministry at once. Hello? He doesn't take all the gifts and all the operations of service to God at one time. You're too smart for that. Okay, he's going to do it little by little. He's going to start garnishing you. A little bit of prayer life, a little bit of no sacrifice, a little bit of compromise, a little bit of surrender of this, and a little bit of compromise for that, so that he can move you out of your place and stop you from serving God. And guess what? So he can take all the gifts that the Holy Ghost has put in your life and in the church to Babylon. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Amen. Say, but tonight I'm getting them back because this is the fifth month. Say it, it's the fifth month. And Ezra came to Jerusalem with the vessels in the fifth month. Say this with me, a reversal of Tisha B'Av. I'm getting back everything that the devil stole and somebody ought to give God the praise and give God the glory. All right. Now, just very quickly, it's very important. I'm giving you a crash course in Tisha B'Av. You're actually getting a crash course in advanced Torah and some of these concepts. Okay, things that took years to study, years and years and years and years. I, I started studying Torah in the 1980s. And it was all by accident, not by accident, but by divine providence. But the reason I started studying Torah is because I couldn't take the commentaries anymore. I I, I just couldn't do it. Okay, I'd go to the bookstore, I'd pray, 
I'd stay for hours looking in the shelves of the bookstore, getting please recommend a really good person who's going to take us really deep in the commentation. And then they said, well, they give you the name of the favorite one. And I got all as many as I could get at home, start studying and flat, nothing. And all, I mean, everywhere, the commentaries, it just seemed as if there's no real explanation. And the Lord, one day, this is not a joke, not a lie. This is not a fabrication. This is reality. One day, it was a Sunday. Papa, I believe, was in Mexico on a mission. <laughs> because most of the 80s, he was. And I don't think I'd be driving to LA by myself if you were home. So he must have been in Mexico at the time. I cannot remember where Papa was. But because he, he preached a lot in the 1980s in Mexico. So it probably was then because he wasn't with me. The Lord woke me up early in the morning and he said, just get in the car and drive, literally, just get in the car and drive. I was so impressed in my spirit. So I got in the car, started to drive, and it came to me, drive on the 10 freeway, go to L.A. I said, okay, Jesus, you're driving this car, I'll just go to L.A. I'm driving on a Sunday afternoon, and the Lord says, get off at Fairfax. I'm from Orange County. I don't know L.A. very well at all. I have no idea. He said, just go down Fairfax and the rest I will show you. I started driving down Fairfax and all of a sudden I see this mural. It's huge. And it's, it's on the wall of a restaurant. And I said, oh my gosh, this looks like Israel. And I pulled into the parking lot. And it was, of course, Cantor's restaurant. Okay, so I'm just there. And I'm looking around, it's the 1980s, and across the street, there's a bookstore. And the Lord says, that's why you're here. So I went into the bookstore, and I discovered Torah. Hello, are you with me? Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And, and those rabbis... The, the bookstore moved, but they're still the same rabbis who run it, and they know us very well. Wow. Hallelujah. Praise God. <laughs> Hallelujah. There's been times I've called up there and they said, this is Dr. Corral from Orange County. Could you please find me? And they say, oh, yes, you'll love this. You'll love that. And they just ship it off to the house. Yeah. It's marvelous. Yeah. It's wonderful. But the biggest, the biggest blessing, can I tell you? Yes. One time... You know, we were in there. They know we're Goy. They know we're, we're Gentiles. There's no question about it. We're not trying to pretend we're Jews. Yeah. We're just going in there, and they know we love Jesus. They're kind of shocked about it. They can't believe it. And, and one time, the son of the rabbi had gotten back from Brooklyn, and he was on vacation, and he was running his father's store. And he saw all these Torah books that were being purchased because I was buying a bunch of Torah books. And I said, can I say something to you? And he said, yes. And I said, you know that I'm, I'm not a Jew. And I said, I just want to say thank you so much to the Eastern Jewry, to the Eastern Jews of Eastern Europe for going to the prison camps. Because if you did not go to the prison camps, I would not have Torah right now. Oh. 
He was floored. He was like, he couldn't believe it. He was floored. See, that's the way the Jews are going to know Jesus is the Messiah. That is the way. They're going to know that Jesus is the Messiah little by little, giving little seeds. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. Okay, so now let us go very quickly and see. Some of you will be cast into prison, but be thou faithful unto death, for I will give you a crown of life. The Bible also says to the church at Philadelphia, let no man what? Steal your crown, not to surrender the sovereignty of the anointing, the sovereignty of the calling, because the crown represents the anointing. The Bible tells us in Leviticus, the 20, 21st chapter and the 12th verse, that the anointing is the crown of the anointing. Somebody ought to give God the praise and give God the glory. All right. So now what was exiled? I was telling you, you're going to get a, a short course in advanced Torah. All right. What, what was exiled besides the people and besides the vessels? The book of Ezekiel is about the exile of the glory. The glory went into exile. Say it with me. The glory went into exile. Okay. Let me give you some examples of how the glory went into exile. Go with me, please, to Ezekiel chapter 1. He is a captive. He's already in exile. And now he is by the river Hebar. The river Hebar was a place where the B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, would go at night. And they would weep for Zion. They would go there. They would mourn every night by the willow trees. Psalm 137 speaks about this. Why would they go at, not at night, but at sunset? Because what would happen in Jerusalem is that sunsets in Jerusalem, the Solomon's temple's doors were made of pure gold. And they were made in a certain way that when the sun sets, the light of the sunset would be on the gold and it would set the whole city golden. Okay, that's why Jerusalem is called Jerusalem the gold. So they would go at the golden time. Say it with me, the golden time. And so the mourners of Zion would line up at the river. Someone look at Psalm 137 before I read this. Go ahead and get that for me. Yes, look at he already did. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, there we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged up our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive, the Babylonians, required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us more saying, sing one of the songs of Zion to us. And they said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. Now, what they would do when they mourned is they would go at the sunset just at the time, remembering how Jerusalem would be golden when the sun hit the doors. And this is relevant because it goes with Ezekiel's vision. Look at Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel chapter 1. The Bible says it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, 
that I was among the captives by the river Habar, and that the heavens were opened, and I saw the visions of God. Now, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi. Verse 4, and I looked... And behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding it, and a great brightness. So while he's meditating on the brightness of the gold from Jerusalem, God opens the heavens, and he's seeing a huge golden cloud, bright, and coming out of the cloud, verse 5, is the likeness. Looking at verse 4, and out of the midst of it, out of the midst, the color of the amber, out of the midst of the fire, and out of the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. These living creatures were cherubim. Say it. Okay, guess what? They're not the hallmark cherubim, okay? They're not the little creatures with the little tummies, with the two little wings and the sweet faces that look like babies. I don't know where we got that, but that is not it. Okay, that's a very unscriptural, maybe Michelangelo Renaissance idea of cherubim, but that is not a biblical version of cherubim. The cherubim were very, very um, awesome creatures, and there were four of them. And attached to the cherubim were another species of angels called the wheels. And these wheels were burning flames. And they came down from heaven looking like a chariot. And guess what they came down to do? To lift the glory of God off the city of Jerusalem and off the temple. And so this is expressed Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11, and we're looking at Ezekiel 11. And I'd like you to, let's just look at these um, verses of Ezekiel 11. It's so important that we see it. Ezekiel 11, uh, we're going to look first at Ezekiel 10. Uh, Would you go ahead and read Uh, Ezekiel 10, uh, verse 15, all the way to verse 18, and that would be Brother Philip. Ezekiel 10, 18, uh, 15 to 18. The cherubims were lifted up. This is a living creature that I saw by the river of Kabar. And when the cherubims went, the wheels went by them. And when the cherubims lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also turned not from inside them. When they stood, the, when they stood, these stood. And when they were lifted up, these lifted up. Excuse me, I think we're in the wrong place. Okay, we want, he's reading correct. What we want is Ezekiel chapter 10. Chapter 10. Let's see. Let me just go. I'm so sorry. Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 15 through 18. Okay? The cherubims were lifted up. That's what Philip was reading, but that is not—is that what was on the screen? Okay, Philip was reading correct, but the screen I want you all to follow. So there we go. Okay. All right. Go ahead, Philip. Read it again. Philip was reading it, but I want you to be able to follow it. Okay. Yes. 
Go ahead. This is the living creature that I saw by the river of Hebar. And when the cherubims went, the wheels went by them, and when the cherubims lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also turned not from beside them. When they stood, these stood. And when they were lifted up, these lifted up themselves also. For the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of God departed from off the threshold of the house. Okay, why is the glory of God departing off the threshold of the house? These creatures came down from heaven to take it back to heaven. Do you all understand? The glory is going in exile. All right, so we're seeing the anointed vessels are in exile. The holy glory is going into exile. That's what this whole thing is about. The glory of God is being exiled from the earth. Are you seeing it? Yes. Say, that's the Tisha B'Av. Okay, the Tisha B'Av is not about burning buildings. The Tisha B'Av is about the departure of the glory of God. Hello, somebody. Are you with me? Okay, read verse 18. Go ahead. Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the Jeroboam's. Yes. Okay, and then we're looking at chapter 11. Now, we're just skipping, but chapter 11, very important, verses 22 through 23. Then the cherubims lift up their wings, and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. Notice, why is the glory of God above the cherubim? Because they're lifting it. They're taking it back to heaven. Are you seeing? They came to lift it. And notice the wheels. What are the wheels? The wheels are a species of angels that are like chariots. They're fiery flames. Okay? Fiery flames. All right. Go ahead. Verse 23. Again, also. Yes. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. Notice it was lifted off the city. So first it was lifted off the house in stages. Then it was lifted off the city. Then finally it's now in the mountain on the east. What mountain is on the east side of Jerusalem? Mount of Olives. So the glory is going to depart from where? Where did Jesus ascend to heaven? Same place the glory ascended, Jesus ascended. Are you with me? Okay, so read that again one more time, Philip, just so we have it in our spirit. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Afterwards, the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea. Okay, very good. So what I wanted to show you was this Depart this exile was not just people being exiled. This exile was not just the vessels being exiled. This vessel, this exile was the glory being exiled. And guess what else was exiled? The holy fire was also exiled. The holy fire stopped. The holy fire left. I don't know about you, but I don't want the holy fire to leave. But now the ark was exiled. And the breastplate was exiled. All the other vessels were returned. 
But the ark was never returned to this day. No man knows where the ark is. The breastplate on the high priest's garments was also exiled, and it was never returned. They had to make another one. But in the second temple, they did not manufacture again the ark. The ark is never recovered, and they did not make a second one. Hello, somebody, are you with me? But they did make another breastplate for the high priest, but it's not the one with the Urim Vituvim. They don't have it. The Urim Vituvim is gone. It was gone in the exile of the Babylonians. So now everything supernatural has been exiled out and not returned in the second temple. It will only return in the Messianic era. Say, and the Messianic era has returned. The messianic era is here. So say this with me. This time, this month, fire is returning. Glory is returning. The breastplate is returning. And the ark is returning. Are you with me? Okay. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit. We're only going to talk about one, and then we're going to be finished. I can't talk to you tonight about the holy fire. I can't talk to you tonight about the clouds of glory and the glory that's exiled, because we would have to be in a seminar for a day to be able to do that. Okay, I cannot talk to you tonight about the ark being exiled. We'd have to have a series on the exile, the ark, the whatever, okay? So tonight I'm going to speak to you very briefly about the breastplate. All right, because that is what God is giving us tonight. He's giving us back the glory. He's given us back the fire. He's given us back the ark in our own lives. If you want to know a little bit about it, listen to last night's uh, teaching on, um, I don't know if they recorded it, but our message from MST last night, okay? Now, I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28 is going to tell us about the high priest's garments. Exodus 28, it's extremely important that we know about the breastplate. Why? Because the breastplate has already been given back to the church. How do we know? Because Paul tells us. He tells us to put it on. Okay. Second Timothy, if you will, or excuse me, not second Timothy, Ephesians chapter six but we're looking at Ezekiel at Exodus 28 but I will read to you from Ephesians while you are looking at Exodus 28 and we're going to begin with Exodus 28 verses 2 and 3 are our focus however verse 13 wherefore Take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with the truth. Having what? On the breastplate of righteousness. Now to we in, in the Western world, we just say breastplate of righteousness. That's just the title that he's calling the breastplate. But guess what? That's not a title that Paul is calling the breastplate. That's the actual title. In Hebrew, it is the Hoshin Mishpat. Say it. Say it again. Hoshin Mishpat. Okay, because righteousness in Hebrew is the same concept as judgment. Okay, righteousness and judgment are basically the same. 
Why? Because Israel was commanded to judge with compassionate judgment. So when you say Hoshin, the Hoshin, which is the breastplate, it's called the breastplate of judgment. That is what it was called. But in, in Greek, if you translate judgment in Greek, it will come out righteousness. Do you all understand? Yeah. Breastplate of righteousness. Now, why is Paul calling it a weapon of war, an armor? Because it was. It was used by the high priest of Israel as the most dangerous weapon against the enemies of Israel. Let us look at this, Exodus chapter 28, and I will explain to you so you know how to use the breastplate. How many want the breastplate taken out of captivity? Say this with me tonight. I want to receive the spiritual breastplate. I want to use it in warfare. I want God to fully equip me and fully arm me with the weapons that are not of this world. All right. Hallelujah. You will make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You will speak unto all the wise-hearted whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Actually, in the Aramaic Targum, it does not just say, um, you will speak unto all the wise-hearted whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. It actually says, you will speak to all the wise-hearted whom I have filled with the spirit of prophecy from before the Lord, and they shall make the garments for Aaron. So we are seeing that the garments themselves had to be made prophetically. So in other words, they had to have the designers had to follow the design that God gave to Moses, but they were going to reflect something prophetically so that the garments themselves are prophetic instruments of God. Do you all understand? Yes. That's why they had to have the spirit of wisdom. They had to have, and the Aramaic Targum translates and renders the spirit of wisdom as the spirit of prophecy. Say it. The Aramaic Targums Aramaic translate, translate the spirit of wisdom, spirit of wisdom. and renders it as the spirit of prophecy. Okay, the Aramaic Targums are absolutely incredible. Um, they're incredible commentaries. Even though it's translations of the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic, the sages who translated them place commentaries in the translations. It's like a living Bible, only in Aramaic. And so therefore, the sages give us the authoritative, because the sages are authoritative, so it gives us the authoritative, actual rabbinic shot on those verses. And it's extremely important for us to know. All right. These garments, these are the garments which you shall make. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, an embroidered coat, a miter, and a girdle. And you shall make them holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and for his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Now look at Exodus 28, 28, very important. Exodus 28, 28. Notice in Exodus 28, verse 28, there's an instruction that the breastplate can never be separated from the ephod. I'm going somewhere with this. Say this with me, that breastplate can never be untied and it can never be separated from the breastplate. 
Okay, so if a garment is the priest's ephod, then it's attached to the priest's breastplate. Not Remember, this is only the high priest's garment, not all the priests, only the high priest. All right, do you see that? Read it. Let's read 28, 28. Go ahead and read that for us, Philip. And they shall bind the breastplate by the rings thereof unto the rings of the ephod, which is with a lace of blue, that it may above be above the, curi the curious girdle of the ephod, and that the breastplate be not loose from the ephod. Okay, so now what was the breastplate? Let me, let's look at this really quickly. I want to share with you about the stones in the breastplate, very important. Exodus 28, there were the stones of the 12 tribes. Notice, um, let's just read only, just go ahead and read, go ahead and read verse 16 and just only one line from 17, and I will explain it because of time. Four square shall be being doubled, a span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof, and thou shalt set in the settings of stones, even four rows of stones. And verse 21. And the stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel, 12 according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with his name shall be, shall thy be according to the 12 tribes. Okay, so each stone was different, and engraved inside the stones were what? What did we just read? Okay, so in the stones you have what? Do you have you have names and how are the names put there? Through what? Yes, Michael? Pardon? Letters. Say this with me. Stones and letters. Where have we heard this before? Stones and letters. Yes, Calvin. When Adam was in the garden, he had the stones and they were Engraved on. Okay, excellent, excellent. Stones, because why? In the garden was the onyx stone. The onyx stone had the most writings on it. The onyx stones, two of the onyx stones. One onyx stone here, one onyx stone here. Six names of the 12 tribes here, six names of the 12 tribes there. The onyx stone was in the garden, so what does that mean? That means that Adam had access to stones with letters. Hmm. Hmm, say hmm. Does that cause a question to be raised? If it does, then I'm truly teaching Torah. If there's no questions to be raised, I'm not teaching Torah. Okay, does it raise a question? Okay, where have we heard letters in stones before? Michael? The Ten Commandments written with the finger of God, correct? Yes. Okay, so heavenly stones with the commandments of God. Say it with me. Stones, stones. letters, yes. commandments of God. Okay, now, now that we know letters and stones have to do with the word, don't they? Okay, so you've got the 12 stones, and you've got each tribe in each stone. Inside the stone, nobody knows how they were engraved because it's not engraved on the outside. It's engraved from the inside. All right. Now, when 
the breastplate was to be made, there was a special parchment that was to be put within the breastplate called the Urim Vituvim. Say it. All right, let's look at that. I want you to see it in the writing. Go with me, please, to verse 30. And go ahead and read verse 30. Prophet Philip. And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment that you will be and that you be. And they shall be upon Aaron's heart. And when he goeth in before the Lord, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord will see what Okay. What is this? Okay, the name Urim is, now remember, haven't you heard Urim? Hmm, does that sound familiar? Do you remember Bethsalel's father, the son of Uri, the son of Ur? Set with me. Bethsalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur. Okay, he is the architectural designer that God chose. Exodus chapter 31 Verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, See, I have called Bethsalel by name, the son of Uri, the son of, the son of Ur, and I have put within him the Spirit of God in all wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, because he's going to be the chief architect, and he has to have the spirit of prophecy to be able to design everything because everything that Aaron's going to wear is going to prophesy something about God. The garments are not just to be looked at. The garments prophesy what God is like, and the, pro the garments serve a purpose. All right, so what would happen is that this parchment that was known as the Urim Vetuvim, it was a scroll, and it had within it the name of God that no one knew except Moses and Aaron. It had a scroll with God's name in it, and it was placed inside the breastplate. A name that Moses would, uh, that Aaron would call upon when Israel went to war. And when Israel was going to go to war, Israel was not allowed at all to go to war till God told the king of Israel what preempted strike that God was going to make. God made the preempted strike, not Israel. Do you understand? What's a preempted strike? A strike before the enemy strikes. Strike before the enemy strikes. For example, you, you say, let's, say, let's just say, God forbid, a foreign nation uh, declares war on another nation for no reason, and they just strike them. That's a preempted strike. Okay, God would put the preempted strike in a miraculous manifestation. It would either be wind, or remember when the Bible says David uh, couldn't go to war till God told him, and God said he's going to go out through the mulberry bushes like a rustling. That's when God was in the camp. But only the high priest knew which way God was going to move. Okay, only the high priest could say, God is going to be over here, or God is going to be over there, or God is going to move mightily. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. amen. So what would happen is that the name of God would be told to Aaron, and he would put his hand on the breastplate, begin to speak the braha to the Lord, and coming down from heaven would be lights. That's why it's called Urim.
Urim means lights. Set with me, lights. The lights would hit the stones. The stones would light up. The stones would light up. That the, the letters would light up in the stones, and they would be able to figure out, the high priest would be able to put letter together with letter, and the words would be formed, and therefore, the message would be given to Israel through looking at the letters through the lights. Are you with me? Yes. Now, how does that have to do with you today in this time? Because the stones, the letters and stones is right here. Say this with me. My Bible, My Bible. is the letter with stones. Because, you know, you have a Bible. They didn't have pages in those days with a Bible. They, they had to write on tablets. All right? So your Bible right here is your breastplate. And the Holy Ghost wants to light up the letters so that when you are in war, all you do is you open your Bible and God will give you a message on warfare. God will show you exactly what he wants you to do to win the war. That's why you need the breastplate of righteousness going for the armor of God. Thank you for joining us today on Day of Destiny. We invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com where you can easily access other podcasts and obtain your copy of Dr. Corral's latest book, Secrets of the Anointing. Also, we want to take this moment to invite you to engage in extending your hand of kindness by planting your seed or offering for multitudes that include orphans, providing water wells, providing medical supplies, clinics, feeding programs, and many other services to the suffering church and through efforts of evangelism worldwide. Just go to our website and click the donate button or text to give. Text HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. That's HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. You are also invited to visit Dr. Michelle Corral Facebook or Instagram. We look forward to having you encounter the anointing with us on our next Day of Destiny podcast.